Thanks, Pastor Nathan. Morning, Harvest. It's been a great morning already, amen? And uh, grateful now to continue that. If you're new with us uh, here, as Pastor Nathan said, my name is Jordan. I'm part of the staff team here at Harvest. Privileged to be able to open up God's Word for us now. We are in this series called The Most Powerful Prayer Ever Prayed. Over the last four weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 17, this, this extended recording of Jesus' prayer to the Father before he would go to the cross, giving up his life as a sacrifice for us. And and the way that he prays, primarily for the disciples, the 11 who would have heard his words, but then also for us by extension, and how this prayer impacts and changes our lives, which is what brings us uh, here this morning to this final message uh, called, That the World May Believe. John 17 verses 20 to 26 is where we'll be in just a moment. I heard, I heard this phrase this week, maybe you've heard it too, love all, hate none. Love all, hate none. Now, this is the, the pervading theme in the world that we live in today. And I mean, on its face, we as believers would agree with that, right? Yeah, loving people, good. Not, hate, not, not hating people, good. The only disconnect exists in the fact that this idea is not lived out at all in our world today. People today love to hate the people that are opposite to them, given whatever discussion, opinion, or or perspective that they might have. Our world lives out this, if you don't completely agree with me and all my life choices, you clearly hate me, so I hate you idea. Have you seen that? Divisiveness rages in our world today based on any number of things. Who you vote for, how much money you make, what color your skin is, how old you are. I could go on and on and on. But in a world of such disunity, the church of Jesus Christ is called to stand out. In a world of such divisiveness, the people of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, are called to stand as a light of something different. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls people from every background, every language, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status, every age bracket. I mean, where else in the world today is such a variety of people gathered together for just one thing than right here in the church as we gather together under the authority of God's word in the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior? If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, we share Christ. We're united in him. And that's exactly what Jesus prays for here in the final part of John 17. He says that they, that us, that we may all be one. Pastor Todd touched on this idea in his message last week and and here this morning, we'll dive into it even further. Gospel-centered people and gospel-centered churches must be marked by their unity with one another by what they are for, who they are for, rather than what or who they are against. Which is exactly what we see in our passage this morning as Jesus prayed 
that I would be one with all believers. Let's see what he has to say. John 17, verses 20 to 26. Follow along with me as we read Jesus' prayer for us and God's word to us this morning. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What we see here in this final part of Jesus' most powerful prayer ever prayed to the Father is that I would be one with all believers in four key things. The first thing we see is this, that I'd be one with all believers in believing the gospel, in believing the gospel. In the first part of our passage in, in verse 20, we see Jesus transition from talking primarily about praying, primarily about the disciples, the 11 who were around him, who would have heard these words that he prayed to the Father, to instead begin praying for those who will believe in me through their word. What he's saying there, who he's saying there is, he's praying for those that would come to see and know and receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of it by the apostles, which includes you and me. Yes, yes, that's right. Us in 2023, some 2,000 years later, after Jesus prayed this prayer, are the recipients of what he's saying right here. Jesus is praying with, with divine foresight to be able to see all of those who would hear the gospel and respond to it in faith from the disciples on down through every single generation until he returns. Do you see this and appreciate the historical reality of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you come to church every Sunday recognizing that believers who have had their lives founded on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ have come together to lift their voices and praise him in worship, to have God's word opened and to sit under its authoritative teaching? Do you see that we join with all believers for thousands of years who have done this and who will do this until Christ returns? That's an amazing thing to consider. You have heard the gospel preached, proclaimed, shared, texted, tweeted, 
posted, proclaimed in some way, shape, or form, and responded to it by repenting of your sinfulness and through the work of the Holy Spirit, receiving the work that Christ did on your behalf by faith, reconciling you to God the Father, then Jesus Christ is praying for you here. And how encouraging is it for us as followers of Jesus to see that our Savior is praying for us as we share the good news of the gospel. How encouraging is it for us to see that when we go out to fulfill what we have been called to do as followers of Jesus, we go in the power of the prayer that our Savior prayed for us. As we seek to, you know, we say it around here all the time, as we seek to live out the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment, as we go to Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ uh, commanded us to do. And as we do so in the spirit of Matthew 22, 36, and 39, by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, Jesus prays for us and those who would receive the message that we have have received and would proclaim to others to receive. Jesus is praying for us as we believe the gospel and live it out and share it with others. And I love this quote from commentator Robert Mounts when it comes to this kind of thing. Our evangelistic efforts do not depend on our own piety or persuasiveness. The effectiveness that we have in sharing the gospel with people and and having people respond to it in faith does not depend on how religious we are, does not depend on how persuasive we might be. Salvation has always and is always a prerogative of the Lord alone. But we serve faithfully by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as it was shared with us and we leave the results all to him. We see, we need to do this. We need to share the gospel as it has been shared with us because this message is the only way that the sin-sick world and the sin-affected people who live in it might be reconciled to a God who is holy and righteous and sinless, a God who loves them, that the only way that this world can be redeemed. We need to share this gospel because it offers something so decidedly different from everything going on out there. And as you've experienced it, so we should long for the people we claim to love and care about to experience it too. Jesus' ultimate purpose in, in praying for this, praying for us, is what we see as he goes on in verse 21. Take a look. He's praying for all who will believe in him through the proclaimed word. Here it is, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He prays for all who would receive the gospel and believe in it. And and we spoke about this a little bit on Good Friday, but the idea, when you believe in the gospel, when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith, when you know it's truth and when you say, yeah, I'm in Jesus, I need you, I need you to forgive me of my sin, I need you to be the Lord and Savior of my life, not only are you welcomed 
into the family of God, adopted as his sons and daughters with an incredible heritage and an incredible inheritance waiting for you. But you are also brought into this incredible unity that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, this, this is a profound and, and unbelievable truth. The perfect unity that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the basis for all Christian oneness. If I am in Christ, because I believe the gospel, Christ is in me. This is, this is Paul's idea in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. By virtue of my union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, I am united in that relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. You, you can't be united with Christ without being one with the Father and the Spirit because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Do you get it? Thank you. <laughs> and the awesome part of this is this isn't an individual experience. That truth, we are all united in. We all experience this together. This is the foundation for the oneness that ought to exist in the church. And as each of us are different, different gifts, different passions, different abilities, different backgrounds, different appearances, different experiences. We are brought together in the same relationship with Jesus Christ. We are brought together in the same truth of the gospel experienced. We are brought together also in the same mission then to make disciples. And, and you see, this, this gets to an important part of, of where people have often got Christian unity wrong because here Jesus prays for unity, not uniformity. Okay, Jesus prays for unity, not uniformity. Jesus is not praying that we would look the same, sound the same, dress the same. But he is praying that we together would be called to a deep and abiding personal relationship with the Lord founded on our belief in the gospel and the love that exists perfectly in Father, Son, and Spirit as the source and standard for our unity. You see, the closer that we get to the Lord in our relationship with him, the, 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 the deeper that we get in our understanding of these wonderful and profound truths, the more we recognize the reality of the gospel and how it plays out in our lives, the more that we see the unity that ought to come because we are united together, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united, the more naturally this is going to grow in our churches and in our relationships. You want to grow in deeper friendships? Grow deeper in the Lord first, and it's going to come naturally. There's no room, there's no room for clickiness, for exclusivity in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no room for clickiness in this church in the relationships that we have. There's no room for exclusivity. No, 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 I just hang out with this group of people. These are my people. I'm only staying here. This church is not exclusive. Your small groups aren't exclusive. Gospel-centered churches are made to multiply. Because we're united in our belief in the gospel and in the reality of all that means in our experience. 
You see, when we have that, the oneness that exists in, in our relationships with other believers, the relationships that exist in our churches will naturally be, see this second, reflecting his glory. When our oneness is founded primarily and most importantly on the gospel of Jesus Christ and our mutual pursuit of him, we will naturally reflect his glory. Check out verse 22. The glory, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. The glory of God is the radiance of all that he is in his perfection being revealed. And, and the purpose of, of Jesus' coming was to make the glory of God known. That, that's exactly what we see in the first part of, of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, that is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Jesus, the God-man, fully God, yet fully human, he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth in all that Jesus was, in all that Jesus is, in all that he, in all that he said, in all that he did, Jesus revealed the glory of God. And that has been given to us. What he means when he says that is that he has revealed God's glory to us, we have seen it so that we, his people, could then reflect it in the world that we live in. As those changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are mirrors of the glory of Jesus. You are the magnifying glass of the glory of Jesus in the world around you. And the main way that we see that, the main way that we experience the glory of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ is through his word. The primary way that the life and ministry of Jesus are revealed to us, and let's make something very clear here, every part of this word points to Jesus. There are some people, there are some leaders, there are some Bible teachers who are trying to get us to jettison the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. That doesn't mean anything anymore. We are New Testament people, and that is just flat out wrong. Jesus is just as central in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. It was said of him very clearly, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, the crowds, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The Old Testament in every part points to Jesus. He's the main character, make no mistake. The gospels reveal the life of Jesus. Acts reveals the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ that is founded on him and his gospel. The letters of the New Testament unpack the theology of the gospel and how it applies directly to our lives. The book of Revelation tells us of the second coming of Jesus when he will come back and fulfill everything perfectly forever. And all that this word is, inspired and inerrant and complete, it details the glory of Jesus and how we can reflect it in the world that we live in. 
Because in his words, in his character, in his miracles, in his sacrifice, in his death, burial, and resurrection, in his ascension, in his sending of his spirit, we see the glory of God and we share that together with other believers who have also seen the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ and who have responded to it in faith. There are, there are a, a myriad of things that people try to find some sense of unity on. Hobbies and passions and fandom. I mean, spend two minutes on the Facebook, Facebook groups page and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, right? People try to find unity on all kinds of different things. There's one group that used to exist, um, I love this so much, uh, that I, I was made aware of a little while ago. It was called the Not Terribly Good Club. And the premise of it, it was the members were not terribly good at things. In order to join the club, you would go to a meeting, you would explain your failure, and the club would determine whether or not you were not good enough to join. Now, if that piques your interest, if some of you are thinking, oh, maybe I could be a part of that. Unfortunately, the club was disbanded a number of years ago because when membership surged, they realized that this club that was about not being very good became very good at being a not very good club, so they, they couldn't exist, just naturally. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the church is a not very good club. You're not very good, I'm not very good. But we have a Savior who is. And this club's not shutting down anytime soon. And all are welcome. Because as believers, the common ground that we have is we love the glory of God. We love the glory of God as revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We love the glory of God when we see other people come to know the reality of saving faith in Jesus Christ. We love the glory of God when our kids get it. We love the glory of God when our family members get it. We love the glory of God as the church goes out on mission and more people come to know him. We love the glory of God. That's the greatest and most transcendent kind of unity to find. And as those who have been saved by believing the gospel, we are, we are promised by God in Jeremiah 20, 32, verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. The oneness that we are called to have as believers, as the church, will come in our lives as we grasp the glory of Jesus in a deeper way. As we see his power and majesty and compassion and goodness and grace and mercy and are compelled by him in the words that he tells us to live out and the example that he sets to do and be the same and live those out as God gives us that one heart and one purpose, we get to do this together. We get to reflect the person of Jesus by beholding his glory as it plays out in our lives side by side and arm in arm with other believers. The more you see the glory of God in Jesus, 
The more you see the glory of God as displayed for us in the word, the more you see the glory of God on display in the lives of those that you are united to, the more you're going to reflect it in your life. The more naturally you're going to be united in oneness with other believers who are reflecting the glory they've been given. So let me ask you a question. Who are you reflecting in your life? What are you reflecting in your life? The hope for every single one of us as believers is that people would look at us the same way they looked at Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. When they saw their boldness, they perceived that they had been with Jesus. When people look at us, when people look at you, do they perceive that you have been with Jesus? That you have beheld his glory and know him personally and love him in all that you are and do? See, we need to be people about this because like Jesus, we've been given a mission Jesus' prayer here in John 17 was for, primarily, like we said already, his disciples that he was about to send out into the world to proclaim his message after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And, And his prayer was that God would be with them and that he would give them what they need for the mission. And so his prayer is for us as well, that God would be with us and give us what we need for the mission. So Jesus prays that I would be one with all believers, believing the gospel, reflecting his glory so that third, we may impact the world. Jesus prayed that I may be one with all believers, that we may be impacting the world. We have a common foundation and a common purpose and the unity that we are called to have is missional. We're together because we have a mission to fulfill. You may have noticed we skipped over it at the, first, at the second part of verse 21. Jesus is praying for this unity so that the world may believe that you sent me, he says to the Father. And then verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, here it is, so that the world may know what? That you loved me, Jesus says, and loved them, us, even as you loved me. Unity exists so that the world to, unity exists so that we can tell the world that God the Father sent the Son and that God the Father loved the world by sending his Son. That's what we're called to proclaim. That's, that's what our oneness is supposed to reveal. And so, so how can we Fulfill this mission that we have been called to fulfill of proclaiming the love of God to other people when we don't love one another. How can we fulfill this mission when all we're doing is arguing and backstabbing and gossiping and slandering and hurting one another? So when the world looks at the relationships that you have with other believers, would they want it? Do they get a glimpse of the glory of God in the relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
The oneness that exists in our church is supposed to be different from the world that we live in, and if it's not, we're doing something wrong. Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Oneness in the church reflects the glory of God and reveals the truths of the gospel that we proclaim. And so when unbelievers look at the relationships that exist between believers, they should see consistency with the message that we proclaim, not something contrary, and they should see something attractive because they don't see it anywhere else. You see, the goal of the church is that we would be striving for complete unity. That's what Jesus means when he says that they may become perfectly one. Listen, we cannot settle in our pursuit of this. Yeah, 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 well, we're we're united, we're we're good, We, we got enough, it's all good, we're fine, let's just coast on through, we're ready to go. Nope, not the case. The evil one wants nothing more than to stir up division, to erode the foundation of the unity that we have with petty arguments, with offenses left undealt with, with holding on to anger or grudges. But if we're truly a church that is seeking to make more and better disciples of Jesus, and if you are on board with this mission that we've been given, both personally, individually, and corporately, then what changes must be made in your life or in your perspective to foster this kind of God-honoring unity? Who do you need to talk to today? who you have wronged or who has wronged you. In grace and in love and in the name of Christian oneness to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with in order that the kind of unity that we're seeking to foster here that God is seeking to grow here might continue. How do you need to think differently about what your part in the mission of this church and in the body of Christ is to make more and better disciples who love God and love others? It's important important for us to stop here for a moment and and go back in this verse to say very clearly that that perfect God-glorifying unity is a move only of God and the working of his spirit. We can't foster this on our own. And as sinful people, we're gonna mess it up every time. But that perfect unity comes when God moves and works in it and only comes when it is founded on the truth. Jesus said at the beginning of verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, which means, again, our perfect unity comes as a result of us being united with Christ as much as Christ is with the Father in perfect love and unity. And so our pursuit of Christ and and in our striving along with his empowerment for perfect unity, we must recognize that there is nothing loving about forsaking the truth which other believers and churches have done. Our unity is found in in in, in, in a true, orthodox, biblical understanding of who Jesus is, of what the true message of the gospel is. Anything contrary to what is true about the gospel of Jesus Christ, any message that tries to add to or take away from that will have ultimately no impact on the world and is something that we cannot be united in. 
We don't forsake the truth of the gospel with one another because there's nothing loving about it and it will ultimately take away from what Christ is trying to build here. We don't forsake any part of the message of the gospel and the fact that salvation comes as a gift of God's grace alone through Jesus Christ alone to be received by faith alone, which the scriptures alone point us to and our highest authority in all to God's glory alone. We're united on the truth as proclaimed in God's word and that unity will have an impact on the world as we live out that oneness and seek to exemplify it in a needy and watching world all while being, see this finally, immersed in his love. Because in the end, all of this comes back to love. And in the final three verses, we see three things that are ours as followers of Christ, ours together as a result of the perfect love of the Father and the Son for us. The first thing we see in verse 24 is that his love guarantees glory. His love guarantees glory. Look at verse 24 again. Jesus says, interesting here, Father, I desire, what does he want? Jesus wants something. I desire, he's praying that they also, us, whom you have given to me. Remember, we talked about this on Good Friday, that that those of us who are in Christ were known before the foundation of the world. God chose us, predestined us before the foundation of the world and gave us to the Son to deal with faithfully, perfectly, and completely. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, Jesus says. While the disciples and us, by virtue of the recorded word of God, have experienced Jesus' glory, we've talked about that already, it really is only a glimpse of the full weight of the glorious Son who we will see one day when we are with him face to face. John Calvin describes the difference in this way. At that time, he's speaking of John 17, he's speaking of the disciples. At that time, they saw Christ's glory as someone shut up in the dark sees a feeble and glimmering light through small cracks. Christ now wants them to go on to enjoy the full brightness of heaven. Jesus, here in his prayer, he's he's fast-forwarding, he's looking forward to when we will be caught up with him in his presence and see the fullness of his glory that the Father has given to him as a result of his fulfilling the mission that he has been called here to this earth to fulfill out of the perfect love that exists eternally between them. Jesus is our conquering king. He is the rider on the white horse. And for those who love him, those who see him for who he is and who he revealed, those who know and receive and believe the truths about him, he promises, he says to us in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. We, as those immersed in the perfect love of the Father and the perfect love of the Son and the perfect love of the Spirit, can live with a wonderful promise and an expectant hope that we will share with the glor- in the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, when we are with him forever. 
How often do you stop and consider this? J.I. Packer was a, a Canadian theologian, uh, wrote a number of books. It was said of him that he often would just leave randomly to go take walks. And when people asked, why are you leaving? He would say, I need to go contemplate eternity. How much would our lives change if when we woke up in the morning, the first thing that we thought about was not checking our phone to see what's going on somewhere else in the world or what's going on in the lives of someone else around us or not what was coming for us at work that day or not what we are going to experience with our kids when they woke up. But what if the first thing we thought of every single morning was eternity and the fact that we are a people with an inheritance promised, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us forever? Our time is coming to an end very quickly here. So would we not be better off served by thinking of what is to come next, which will never end, than focusing on what's going on here? The love of Christ guarantees glory for you. Where the effects of sin are gone, where the struggles with suffering are gone, And by the way, we're going to do that together. We're going to be with one another for all of eternity, so we better get used to being together. There's one pastor I once knew, he used to say, you're going to spend eternity with one another, so you better figure out how to be together. Is it not true? We share in this promise together. Christ has guaranteed glory for you, for us. His love guarantees glory. Secondly, his love reveals righteousness. His love reveals righteousness. Verse 25, Jesus begins that verse by addressing God as righteous father. And it carries this idea that, that God is a just and perfect and sinless judge. And it's a fitting description based on what he says next. Keep looking. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, us, know that you have sent me. Jesus sets up two contrasting groups here. We've got first uh, the world, which we've established in this series is a, is a reference, uh, John uses the reference often, a general reference to the, to the God-opposed, Jesus-hating, sin-sick human society in general, not specific individual believers, which does not know God, and those that Jesus has revealed God to who do know him. Jesus Christ Son of God knows intimately and accurately the reality of the depth of righteousness, holiness, transcendence, and otherness of God the Father because he shares that nature. And he has graciously and lovingly revealed that in himself to us. Anyone who has a reconciled relationship with a righteous father, which again, an incredible thing to consider that we decidedly unrighteous, rebellious and sinful enemies of God who were once separated by a chasm we could never ever eclipse on our own have been brought near to a righteous, holy, perfect, transcendent other God. The only reason that we have that is because of the work that Christ has done for us because of what he has revealed to us. In Matthew 16, we have this incredible picture of, of this as Jesus asks, asks in verse 16, he asks of his disciples, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Upon seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus and knowing Jesus and watching Jesus, Peter gets who he is. The father has revealed the reality of who Jesus is to Peter. And so the Father has revealed the reality of who he is to us. Jesus has lovingly and graciously revealed the Father to us, but not only revealed him to us, but made a way that we can be restored to the righteous Father. And not only made a way that we can be restored to the righteous Father, but positionally given his righteousness. We are justified by his blood. We are declared righteous in the sight of God by virtue of his sacrifice so we may be restored to him, reconciled to him, and know him ourselves. Jesus' love reveals righteousness. And thirdly, his love leads by example. I tried really hard to make the third one alliterative, but it wasn't coming. He guarantees glory. He reveals righteousness. He leads by example. Meh. Wasn't going to force it. Verse 26. Jesus says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Twice, twice now in this passage here and in verse 23, we're told that we've been brought into the love that exists between father and son, which only happens through Christ's leading by example, through his selfless sacrifice out of love. And so that same supernatural Selfless, sacrificial love must exist in our relationships with others. Jesus led by example in what he said in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so as those brought into his love, as those guaranteed glory, as those revealed, who have been revealed righteousness, we follow the example of Christ in how we love and serve and sacrifice for others. And we do so, there's a number of ways in which we do so. The New Testament records for us. This isn't comprehensive, but this is a helpful starting place for us. Uh, this list, by the way, comes from Matt Carter and Josh Redberg's commentary and are all available for you in your notes. We love by doing these things for one another, which Jesus led us in his own example. We love by bearing one another's burdens. Galatians 6.1. We love by coming alongside one another and sharing the hardships of life together. As Christ has taken our burdens, so we work to share the burdens of others. We love by instructing one another, Romans 15, 14, by coming alongside one another and helping understand what God's word says, helping understand how it applies to our lives, help, how, helping other people understand how to live in light of the gospel, reflecting his glory, instructing and impacting the world and immersed in his love. We love one another by forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.2. As we've been forgiven by Christ, so we forgive others. By not bringing it up with them, by not bringing it up with ourselves, by not bringing it up with God anymore. We love one another by praying for one another, James 5.16. I mean, this may be one of the most incredible and powerful ways that we love one another. If we have a good theology of what prayer is, 
if we recognize that we serve a God who loves to work in the prayers of his people, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you, Jesus says, then when somebody says, I'm praying for you, that would be one of the most encouraging things they could ever say. We love one another by submitting to one another, Ephesians 5.21, by living out a you before me kind of mindset. Serving the needs and desires of others before our own, which Christ exemplified perfectly. We love one another by encouraging one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, this life is hard. This calling is hard. We need to encourage one another, not tear one another down. And we love one another by lastly, stirring one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. By encouraging gospel-centered behavior and perspective and attitudes with one another. Because to be immersed in Christ's love, I love that picture, to dive in and be fully enveloped with the love of Jesus Christ perfectly given to you, the love of the Father perfectly shown to you, results in us living united with the same love that he has showed us with one another and the same love that he promises to continue to make known. So if you're one with Christ, then you are called to be compelled by Christ in what he loves. And as he loves his people, as he gave up his life for them, so should we. Christ came and died for his church and his people. So are you committed to pursuing that kind of unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ so that more people might come to experience the same? The unity that exists here at Harvest that God is working to build here as we submit to him is not meant so that we can just ride out the rest of our days in comfort. The unity that Jesus Christ calls us to and prays for is not so that we can just have our cutesy little easy thing that we come to every Sunday where we sing some songs, where somebody talks that inspires us a little bit but doesn't actually change us at all, where we have our own little people and our own little thing That's not what it's for. The oneness that exists in the body of Christ is not meant for us to stay in but go out. The church is not closed, Christians. We're called to bring more people in, welcoming more people to the family for the glory of Jesus Christ until we join his glory forever. So, let's commit to the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. Let's believe his gospel. Let's reflect his glory so we may impact the world around us and be immersed in his love. This is the most powerful prayer ever prayed. And it was prayed for you. So make these things so in us, Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Holy Father, righteous Father, God of all goodness and grace, God of all might and sovereignty, God of all holiness and righteousness, we 
recognize that the things you have called us to here are significant. But what you have brought us into is significant. You have welcomed us into your family while we were your enemies. You have brought us from death to life. You have reconciled us, unrighteous, rebellious, sinful, wretched people, to yourself as your sons and daughters, bringing with it the incredible hope and light of life, the promise of abundant life now as we submit and surrender to you and eternal life to come where we will bask in your glory forever. So help us, Father, by these truths to be people who love you and who do so together. Make this place, Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario, a place where people see the glory of God reflected by our love for one another, by our unity of purpose, by our unity of passion, by our unity of calling, by our unity of pursuing you and your mission to make your glory known so that more people can come, so that more people in this city can be welcomed into that same kind of unity, so that more people in this county can be welcomed into the same kind of unity, so that more people in this country may come to know and experience the love of Christ, how much you loved us, Father the same way that you loved the Son and gave us to Him so we may know you and follow you. Make us people, Father, who in every way love and follow Jesus Christ. Make us people who exude in all that we are and do and say and think our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus. Be in us. Be around us through us. We invite and ask of you, Jesus, so that we may be a people, your people, united. It's in your powerful and precious name we pray these things, the only name by which any of this is possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.